Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A living history production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome once again to another episode of Living History. Thank you as always for your feedback on the latest episodes. We've done some pretty fascinating things lately on tank crews in World War II, um, a whole range of things. The Cara Breakout, my new book, uh, we've done a couple of special episodes on that. So there's lots of good content that we've been doing at the moment. So go back and check that out. And if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, a small request from me, a review is always very welcomed. A, a review and a star rating always uh, always helps other people find us um, and, and enables us to keep producing great content. So if you wouldn't mind a review wherever you're listening to this podcast or watching on YouTube, that would be very much appreciated. Special episode today, a really interesting one. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. We're going to talk about a new book which is out, which I have a copy of here, which is called An Uncommon Hangman, uh, The Life and Deaths of Robert Nosy Bob Howard. I mean, what a great subtitle, The Life and Deaths of Nosy Bob Howard. I mean, a great story. I really enjoyed this book. Um, It's a chapter of Australian history and and an aspect of Australian history, the whole idea of capital punishment that I think we're all intrigued with. Um, and just a great new book. And so I was really keen to get the author of this book on to talk a little bit about it. So joining us from Sydney is Dr. Rachel Franks. Um, Rachel, thank you for joining us. It's a great book. Congratulations is the first thing I should say. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm really great. glad that you liked the book. Well, we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so just talking a little bit about it. But I think it would be great. Can you paint a bit of a picture for us? The period of time we're talking about is effectively the late 19th century in New South Wales. Before we get started about what is an extraordinary story, could you paint a little bit of a picture for us about what was what life was like in New South Wales at this time? Because I don't think from this remove 150-odd years later, we can even begin to imagine what a different place Australia was in the late 19th century. It's such a fascinating look back at our own past because for everything that you say is so strikingly different and so unfamiliar to us now, there are all these things that we immediately recognise and crime is one of them and the impact that crime has on the lives of all of us, not just the immediate victim of a crime, but everybody in that social setting or that community, society as a whole is often really shaken by the most terrible crimes that are committed. And so we look at that and we look at the emotional reactions to crime and how we don't always handle crime very well. And we actually see 
the problems that we're still facing today. So even though living conditions are radically different, certainly a lot less sophisticated than what we're used to now, and the technology, the tools that we have to fight crime are very different, the actual crimes themselves, murder, rape, and the fear of crime is actually not too dissimilar to how newspaper headlines unfold for us now. It's a really interesting point you make because I've been doing a a lot of research well over the years on Jack the Ripper, which is a, for whatever Mm. reason, fascinates people. And it's the same sort of era, this sort of late 19th century. And the thing that always struck me about Jack the Ripper is that I don't want to diminish any of these crimes because obviously they're horrific, but only five victims. It wasn't like he went out and killed 50 people. You know, we have five victims that we note as victims of Jack the Ripper killed in some pretty horrific ways on the street. I was always amazed that it captivated people's attention as much back then, 150 years ago, as it does today, because it strikes me that that time... There was there was a lot of crime around. It was it was a time mm. when you there was a, a big opportunity to be a victim of crime because there was just so much of it around. Um, and yet these particular crimes captivated newspapers and captivated the general public as well. Do I have that right? Was this a time that was a particularly that crime was rife and 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 as an average citizen you had a, a very strong chance of in, of encountering encountering criminal activity? I think that the. Uh opportunities for criminals to commit crimes were not too dissimilar to today. Um, They were often less likely to get caught because we don't have the forensics and the great sleuthing skills and those processes that we're so used to now, watching the average true crime documentary or reading a book or even a newspaper, watching a case unfold over a few weeks if we see something investigated and then subsequently go to trial. But I think that some of these older crimes become big in their own time and stay big because, especially for Jack the Ripper, I think that's the best example of this, they are unsolved. And one of our great fascinations with true crime is, of course, the cold case. And I've always argued that the biggest difference between crime fiction and true crime is that crime fiction, 99.9% of the time, if we trust our authors, they give us a solution that might not always be very satisfactory to us, but we have an answer to this problem. You know, we have this terrible disruption to a family and their setting and their lives, but we have at the end of the day someone identified as being responsible and there is punishment of some sort. I mean, it's not always what we think would be just and fair, but there's usually an outcome, whereas for true crime, we don't always have that reassurance and often we go into these stories knowing that there's no answer for us. And I think that it's human nature to want to solve the puzzle and to want to put a name to who was responsible. Yes, there were only five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, but we want to know who was responsible for the deaths of those women. 
obviously when it comes to the story of your book and the New South Wales executioner, obviously there was a result for those <laughs> crimes since people met the noose. But yeah. I, before we get into the book in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what does a fairly philosophical question, but what does the study of crime teach us about a society? That is a very philosophical question. <laughs> I think it teaches us that it's universal. So for all the things that might separate us, class, race, gender, religion, all of that, crime is actually universal and timeless. It doesn't care about our geography or whether we're in the 19th century or the 20th century. There is always going to be an element of our society, whatever that society looks like, whether it's completely disadvantaged or extraordinarily privileged, there is always going to be an element of people who don't think that the rules, moral, legal or other, apply to them. And so there will always be people who want more and you get your property crimes, whether it's, you know, just cheap everyday theft or aggravated burglary or more high-end embezzlement and fraud schemes and you're always going to have violent crimes and some people actually believe that a small amount of crime is a good thing because it teaches us that there's a problem with society so crime itself is actually not the problem it is a symptom of something else so it's a symptom of poverty or homelessness, or we're not dealing with mental health issues the way we should be. So there's always something to learn from crime stories, whether we're looking at contemporary stuff or whether we prefer historical crime, and a lot of people prefer things that happened a long time ago. It's a little bit safer to look at things in the past occasionally. But there is always something to learn about our own behaviour, about how crooks behave and what a collective response should be. You know, capital punishment is not the answer and I don't think that it ever was, but it took us a phenomenal number of crime stories and endings that were perhaps really fraught, you know, hanging people who are innocent, hangings that go wrong before we actually learnt that lesson from those stories. That's a great answer to my somewhat uh, airy-fairy <laughs> question. I really appreciate it. But it, it, it reminds me, and I do want to get to the book and we will, but I'm fascinated with this topic. I've heard a lot of people talk about this concept that human beings are drawn to the idea of safe danger, that yeah. we do like hearing stories that are dangerous and make us feel nervous and a bit unsafe but in a safe way. So it's the reason young people smoke cigarettes. They know cigarettes yeah. are deadly, but it's not going to kill them until they're old. You know, it's the reason people <laughs> are captivated with shark attack stories because they know their risk of actually getting attacked by a shark is low, but it excites them. And are there elements of that in these stories? When you when we delve into the archives, you, you mentioned that people like historic crime. Is that Do you think that's at play, that people like hearing about crime, but if they're hearing about modern crime, it's a little bit too confronting that it may actually happen to them, which is why they, they want to hear about Jack the Ripper and, and Nosy Bob and, and, and these, these stories from centuries ago. I think there's a little bit of that. I sort of refer to it as murder, but in the comfort of soft furnishings. You know, you can sit in a really cosy spot at home or 
you know, you can read it on a bus, that at any time you're actually in control of crime. You can stop listening, watching or reading and crime simply goes away. And I think that we don't get that control anywhere else. You know, even if you're sort of consuming it through social media, I think that there's not the same level of control. You can't control your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed as easily as you can control those stories that have been crafted and neatly packaged that you've chosen to engage with. And you can stop at any time and crime just goes away. Um, but I think that we have to be careful about how much we consume. I think that building a tolerance to these sorts of stories and the traumas that people really did live and often die through. And so I think that we need to, regardless of how we take up these stories, we need to always remember that at the heart of every true crime tale, it's not just a plot device, right? It's not fiction. It's it's a person and their their experience. Well, your book, let's get to it, because it is all about people and some pretty traumatic experiences. I want to start yeah. with the most obvious question: this hangman, the story of uh, the story of Robert Howard. Why was he called Nosy Bob? Dear old Nosy Bob. So he's a successful cab driver here in Sydney. He's um, sort of doing the eastern suburbs runs and looking after the posh ladies in their lovely waterfront homes. But he loses his nose. And he's suddenly no longer the accessory of choice for a nice middle-class woman. He never makes any attempt to cover it, never wears a scarf, never wears a crew prosthetic. Um, there were some fairly brutal surgical options available in the 19th century, not something that people would have lined up for. I don't think I would have ever gone to a very early, very experimental plastic surgeon in Sydney. Um, but he fell on hard times. So his cab business fell into a steep decline and he needed money and he needed stable employment. So he has six young children at the time. So he takes on casual work for the sheriff. Um, we had an executioner and an assistant executioner in New South Wales. Not all the colonies had an assistant. So Nosy Bob starts out as an assistant on the scaffold in the mid-1870s and the story goes that his mates on the cab rank heard and it really was the lowest job you could do. A lot of people endorsed capital punishment but nobody thought highly of the hangman. And so he ends up taking on the job full time. And so we have this quite macabre picture of a noseless executioner schlepping around the scaffolds around New South Wales for nearly three decades, hanging people. And one of the big complaints about Nosy Bob was the fact that he was noseless and that this noseless monster, as he was called by the press, was the last thing that felons saw before the cap was put over their faces and they were sent off into eternity. It's a pretty grim picture. 
the whole thing is really quite horrific. How, how did he lose his nose, Rachel? Well, there are lots of different um, rumours about how he lost his nose. The most commonly told story is that one of his horses from his cab business kicked him across the face. And that's been told over and over. And if you do a search for Nosy Bob, it's one of the first stories that would come up. But it's actually a very neat slicing. And so I think that it's quite improbable. I did a lot of research around the types of damage that horses did to people. And horses are also big news, right? You know, kicking, trampling, running off, speeding, doing all those terrible things. It's like um, some taxi drivers in inner cities get a bad rap today. There are lots of stories about horse, horses and horse-drawn cabs. So it doesn't make the press at the time of the incident. So I think it was much more likely that he was um, the victim of disease and he lost it that way, which is also why he couldn't have had surgery because if that that part of his face was still dissolving almost, um, there'd be no point in trying to do a reconstruction if, if there was more damage, more damage to come. Well, it certainly is, as you say, The uh, I've, I've got the book cover here. And if you're watching this on our video, if you're listening, go and look it up. But if you're watching on the video, I'll hold this up so you can see. It's quite – he does cut profile. a pretty in, intimidating figure. How how did you even come to this story in the first place? I was actually looking at women and how they were treated by the press in 19th century Sydney as either victims or villains at the centre of criminal cases – so, spoiler alert, not always very well, but uh, because I was doing the late 19th century, I kept coming across Nosy Bob, and I thought, this guy is fascinating, a noseless hangman, really. At first, I thought it was some made-up story, and so I started looking into him, and there's a great obituary about him that comes out just after his death in 1906. And it says, the stories told of Robert Rice Howard, the hangman who died at Bondi the other day, would make an interesting book. I thought, great, where's the book? And nobody had done it yet. And it's such a rare opportunity um, and such a privilege for an historian to have this totally bonkers story just land so neatly in your lap. So I quickly worked out why no one had done it. The archival record is quite problematic when it comes to documenting his life. So it took about eight years to pull it all together. But, um, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. I'm, I'm glad that I did it. I found him. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, he's someone that strikes me as being very, you know, relatively well known in his time, but has definitely yeah. slipped through the cracks a little bit. Um, give us an overview. Tell us about the story. I mean, we want people to go out and buy the book. Um, so, but give us a little taster of the story of, of Nosy Bob and his pretty grisly occupation. So he's a hangman on scaffolds. He's based at Darlinghurst Jail, but he travels all over New South Wales um, to do this ultimate act of the law and send people off, as they say. There's some great euphemisms from newspapers of the day. So you don't want to call them the person about to be hanged. That's a bit too graphic. So they'd often be referred to as the patient. And the hangman is off to take care of them. Yeah, that's... um, that took a little bit of getting used to. So he's 28 years. He hangs 61 men and one woman. And he's mostly pretty good at his job. Most hangings go off without fuss. But to tell his story, because he didn't leave diaries or letters or anything like that that most biographers would just delve right into and and get a timeline and get all the things that he thought and felt, Um, I had to go through his hangings. And that's where the title of the book comes from. So it's his life, but it's told through his 62 deaths and the people that he hanged. So I talk about the crimes that were committed. I speculate about who I think was innocent. And I also talk about the abolition movement at the time. So a lot of people are quite surprised to learn that we actually had a really strong outcry against the death penalty quite early on. And it became a source of colonial pride to try and say, no, this isn't who we are, this isn't who we want to be. And there are some really interesting characters who fight and try and have the law changed. Certainly not successful in Nosy's time, but you see our attitudes become clearer, more moral, more wanting to separate ourselves from that convict past. You know, federation is coming. We want to say, actually, we're quite mature and we're civilised and we have answers around crime and crime control. We don't have all of them, but we have some, and we know that just killing people is inhumane and it's not the right thing to do. And so we slowly get closer to, you know, life incarceration over a quick or sometimes slow death, depending on whether a neck was broken instantly or not. Um But across that is this poor noseless hangman who's cast as a monster. So every time he makes a mistake, it's terrible headlines. It's his fault. This is the man to blame. Because for a lot of people it was easier, I argue, to face down this one bloke, an ex-cabman, doing this horrible job for the sheriff, than the entire legal system. You know, the average person doesn't know how to change a law but we know how to attack and vilify one person who represents it. And so Nosy had 
he had a pretty tough time of it. And so I try and tell in the book his story and how even though he has the worst public servant job that there is, as a person, he's actually quite decent and he's uncommon. So you have all these common hangmen who go before him. Most of our executioners were plucked from the ranks of convicts, right? They're illiterate. They're thugs. They've committed a lot of violent crimes themselves. They're in prison. And so they're trying to take this on to alleviate their own suffering. You know, they're sort of making this deal with the devil. You know, I shall inflict suffering this way so that I don't have to do hard labour. Whereas for Nosy Bob, he was just an ordinary bloke, small business owner, you know, and he finds himself in this pretty horrific situation because he wanted an income. He gets £156 a year to be the hangman and it gives him stability and as a widower, as he becomes soon after he takes on the job, he's actually able to provide for his children and actually do so much better than the average tradesman of um I don't know if you can actually call them a tradesman, but if you, you know, if you were a bricklayer or doing something else, you know, some sort of unskilled labour perhaps, um, he was doing all right financially at least. £156 seems like a reasonable income based on what I've read about yeah, income at the time. Yeah, it's not too bad. Certainly a lot more than um, a lot of other people that he would have been working with, a lot more than the turnkeys or the people who did all the checks at a jail, certainly not as much as a more senior administrative person like a, a deputy sheriff or the sheriff. They were on quite exorbitant sums of money. The sheriff ends up with £750 a year by the end of the century. So, But for a man with... His background, um, still a lot of responsibility. Um, yeah, it would have been quite a good salary. You mentioned the archive and it was difficult to, to pull all the details out. I know that there was probably a lot of newspaper coverage of these crimes mm. and the executions. What about official records? Was, was capital punishment something that was fairly accurately documented from an official perspective or was it covered up and, and, and there's not a lot of official paperwork about it? Look, it varies. I think there was a lot of shame around the oldest colony and the penal history and wanting to be better than that. So there's a lot of stuff that's not kept. We do have certificates of execution, but they sort of sign off that the right person was hanged at the right place on the right date. And it's more about the medical officer saying, yes, this happened according to law, and the witnesses are listed. But it's not like the hangman goes off and signs the paperwork or anything. So even working out who was the hangman when was really quite hard. So you have to look for different scraps of correspondence, the newspaper coverage, some of it has been exaggerated, especially if you're fighting for abolition, right? You're going to say that something was much worse than it was. Um, so finding out which hangings were bungled and which actually went off 
reasonably cleanly. That was quite a challenge. There's an amazing document held called the Dullinghurst Jail Death Register, which is the most depressing and fascinating ledger all at once. And it's everybody who died while they were in prison. And if they died of disease or they fell down the stairs or whatever, but they also list all the people who were hanged. And they say in that whether somebody was asphyxiated because the noose hadn't been fitted properly perhaps or whether it was a clean break of the neck. And so you're able to take that archival evidence and then compare it with how the newspapers covered off on an execution. But certainly for for Nosy Bob, it would have been a lot easier if the um, if the clerical corps had done a better job with all the record keeping. But there's enough to prove when he was in different towns and cities, and some of the the bigger events in his personal life as well. When he comes out to Australia from England, when he was getting married, when his children are born, when they get married. So even though he's this dark, shadowy figure in lots of respects because of his occupation, I was able to prove he actually has quite a normal life in many respects, which is nice. How well did you get to know Nosy Bob as a person? Do you feel you have a good handle on what he was like as a man or is he one of these shadowy figures of history that we don't know very much about? Look, I came to trust him and I actually came to like him quite a lot. He became quite a good friend, especially during the pandemic. I was working from home and I was working part-time so that I could finish writing the book. And there were two key things I learned about him that made me look at some of the interviews that he gave over the years slightly differently. He keeps a lot of animals Um He rescues dogs from the pound. He rescues horses from the pound. Um, He trains these horses because he's noseless and he's the hangman. He's not really welcome at the local pub. So he trains his horse to carry a billy with a small coin down to the local establishment. Bartender comes out, takes the money, fills the billy with beer, and the horse knows to walk much more slowly going home so he doesn't spill a drop. Um, So, I mean, that's the sort of pet that we all wanted during lockdown, right? (laughs) The one that would go out and do all the errands for us. (laughs) Especially if that errand was bringing beer home. uh, (laughs) I agree. And also women trusted him. So he gets into a punch-up with somebody who he says threw a stone at his dog and he's charged with grievous bodily harm, which is quite a serious offence. All his character witnesses in court are women. Now, the idea that a woman in colonial Sydney would go out of her way and associate herself with the hangman, but actually stand up for the public record and say, he's a good man, he's an excellent neighbour, he's very quiet and obliging. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to trust my fellow women And once I started looking at him the way they saw him, I felt that I actually got to know him really well and it was easier to work out when I was reading accounts of him in the newspapers to not just draw patterns of 
coverage, but to actually instinctively be able to think that's correct or I don't believe that and then check that and be able to quickly prove that actually it was a false report. It's one of the things I love about studying history is that when we learn about characters, they do become more than just facts and figures to us as historians. I can see that's the case with you. And I'm sure there's some academic historians that say that's a failing, that, you know, you should stay It's a terrible thing. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the opposite. I think the study of history is about human beings. We're, you know, mm-hmm. we're not talking about dry facts and figures. And I love that, that as I read about history, I find myself getting attached to the characters that, I, that I'm writing about. That must have been a great journey for you too with this book. Yeah, it was um, quite hard. You would know this as a, a writer that you send the book off and that's it and you're still really anxious about commas and that one sentence, was it perfect and all that sort of stuff. So I, I sent it off and... Um, I started getting all these emails from publishers and friends saying, oh, congratulations, it's done, it's finished. And um, I actually felt incredibly lonely because it was done and I'd lost, it felt, like a really good friend. But, um, of course, he hasn't gone anywhere, but just that really intense relationship of getting to know him, it, it um, felt like a really weird breakup even though I have never for the record dated an executioner <laughs> it's what it felt like when I submitted the that's why I always script. jump back onto my next book as soon as I finish one because I, oh, uh, you know, I enjoyed no, it so I much so. oh no I felt really I felt hammered I was just like it was this really chaotic mix of exhaustion and relief and terror that I couldn't tinker with it anymore and and play around with it and add stuff and anyway, it's done. Do we know where? Do we know where Nosy Bob ended up? Is he buried at one of the cemeteries in Sydney, or do we know he what happened to him? He is in Waverley. He's in Waverley Cemetery, quite close to the entrance. There, he has actually quite a well cared for grave. He's there with his wife and one of his grandchildren and and a daughter. So it's. Yeah, he had quite a sad life in many respects. There was, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have all this death at work, like that is your day job. But he also, like a lot of people in 19th century Sydney, death is at home. You know, people get sick and they die at home and he loses children and grandchildren. He loses his wife. He's a a widower for much of his life. So, you know, it's it's tough, but he has this kind of strength and he he works very hard at being normal. So a lot of hangmen would only go to the jail when they had to hang somebody. But he wanted to have a regular job. So he catches the tram, he goes into Darlinghurst Jail every day like a normal public servant, and he just finds stuff to do, right? He's doing the gardens, he's teaching prisoners how to grow vegetables, he's looking after the sheriff's horse and buggy, he'll go and do the washing up at the restaurant if they're busy. Um, He's just doing all this stuff because he was a man who wanted to be useful and he wanted to set a good example for his children. You know, you must make a contribution. Don't be idle. Don't be one of these men that I 
See you on the gallows. That's an extraordinary story. Just just before we finish up, Rachel, I wanted to touch on not only is the writing and the storytelling excellent, but the the pictures, the illustrations in the book, are uh, really, some yeah. of them are quite confronting. Um, but I'm going to show this one again. If you're watching this on the YouTube video, um, just check. I don't know if you can see that one, but it's it's basically instructions about how the noose was to be fitted and various gruesome aspects of how the condemned yeah. was to be tied the and the hood the was neck. to be fitted. Yeah. Um, that's a great part. Was that a you know was that a, a key part of your research and of telling the story to make sure that the book was very well illustrated? I wanted to have those images there. I wanted people who read the book to see the problems of crime and capital punishment as people who lived these stories saw it. So I use quite a few newspaper headlines. I try and use the terminology of the day. And one of the things that was really striking was during Nosy Bob's tenure as hangman, the science of hanging becomes much better understood. And as most people are starting to question capital punishment, and then there's a really big cohort of people who are saying, actually, really, stop, stop now, but you've still got this bureaucracy trying to justify it. No, no, this is what we've always done. It works. We don't want to risk what something else might look like. And so you have all this really confronting administration, like memos of instructions and diagrams. And part of it is everybody was trying to find somebody else to blame. So the administrators are saying, no, no, there was an illustration. We told them what to do. That's not our fault. The judges are saying, well, it's not really my fault. It's the legislator's fault because this is the law. And the juries are saying, well, it's not us. The judge issues the death sentence. So there was this really interesting outsourcing of responsibility for killing another human being. And so I wanted to to bring that in. And I think, too, that it breaks it up a little bit because 62 hangings, there's a lot of crime in this book. And I think understanding some of the context of that um, actually makes it a better story. Well, it's a great achievement, Rachel. And as we say, it's probably not quite bedtime reading unless you want to have some <laughs> nightmares. Um, but I, I just really love that it was. It, it combines history, true crime. The social history elements were excellent as well. Um, just a really great book, a great achievement. The book is called An Uncommon Hangman, The Life and Deaths of Robert Nosy Bob Howard by Rachel Franks. And I thoroughly recommend you pick it up if you're at all interested in history and uh, and true crime. It's just a, a, a great read all round. A, a wonderful achievement. So congratulations for that, Rachel. And um, thank you for joining us on the show to talk all about it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for letting me introduce you to Nosy Bob. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.